So we want to be near to love. We don't have to go anywhere for that. Just have to go in. It's been often said in different religious and spiritual teachings that humanity or mankind is searching for something, for the truth, for love, for the uh, complete contentment all over the world and all they have to do is look inside. Everybody's got it within. And this is what we have in the world, this search, which is of course generated through our dissatisfaction. Searching here, searching there, going here, going there. And it's becoming more and more apparent you can hardly get a seat on an airplane anymore. It's always full. All the freeways are cluttered up completely. Everywhere somebody's going somewhere to find something. And it's in, in reality, we're all carrying it around with us. And we've got it. Use, well, if we use this potent cleansing agent, and don't discriminate whom we love, when we love, why we love. Just substitute all the negativities with that as much as we can. It grows that ability. Then we don't have to run anywhere to look for anything. Because that cleansing agent as such already makes it possible to see other facets within. Some of that contentment that eludes people. But devotion and gratitude and reverence and respect are all part and parcel of love. And again, if we have that, if we have, for instance, reverence and respect, we will have it for all life. Reverence for life, Albert Schweitzer's motto. We won't hurt will be harmless. Our natural uh, pollution of nature will not take place. We'll have reverence for life. We'll have reverence for anything, including, of course, this innate ability within us, which is the seed of enlightenment. We'll have reverence for that. Not for this outer person, which is deluded and has the samsaric difficulties, but for that inner purity. Respect and reverence. Gratitude. The Buddha said something very interesting about gratitude. I could never believe it, that it was really true, until I experienced it over and over again. Namely, that there are three rarities it's in the Anguttara Nikaya and the Book of the Threes. One is the arising of a Tathagata, which means the arising of a Buddha. The second one is a person that will do a kindness, and the third one, a person that will be grateful for it. Gratitude. Very much 
in the forefront of our education of the heart without it the whole aspect of lovingness falls flat we always can love when we're grateful if we don't have gratitude loving is very difficult now in the beginning of loving we have to take into account people whom we think we love and I purposely say think because if it is directed toward a single person or two or three or four whatever happens to be around in our lives it's not what the Buddha called love it's what the Buddha called its near enemy affection which carries attachment I want to keep that person because if I can't keep that person love is going to be lost I usually say that this is one of the greatest absurdities that we operate with that we have to have one or two or three particular people out of five billion in order to love that's one of those absurdities that we never even take into consideration but if we look at ourselves a little less subjectively and a little more objectively these absurdities will become quite clear now if we have this kind of love in our lives we're already very um, fortunate most people don't even have that all they have are worries and fears now let's presume we have one two or three people in our lives that we really love then that love is tinged by fear and fear is hate we don't hate the people we hate the idea of losing them so it has a really not love it's a mild substitute for it it's better than nothing naturally much better than nothing but it's a substitute this fear can only arise for anything that we hate and that is the loss and also of course not only the loss but their change of mind or their disappearance or whatever it happens to be now this is what people generally call love that's what all the movies are about isn't it and they lived happily ever after and nowadays they don't live happily ever after they never did actually but nowadays everybody is admitting it finally we come around to admitting it so instead of trying to find a different one then to live happily ever after with and do the same absurdity again we could very well change our approach and recognize the fact that love is not directional but that love is emotional and then of course there's another absurdity very popular all our absurdities are of course popular because we have that wrong convoluted way of looking at it as I said the wrong view namely that we would like somebody to love us that would be really nice now wouldn't it but whose love is it it's obviously the other person's love isn't it so what good does it do us oh it does it a lot of good it supports our ego illusion 
that we are really lovable. And supporting other people's ego illusion consciously, uh, deliberately, is very unkind. It's not love. If we do it unconsciously, of course, we can't help ourselves. Most people do it unconsciously. But to doing it consciously, deliberately, is not love. So if we are looking for somebody to love us, us, all we're doing, we're trying to find this ego support. How lovable I am. And then that person should change their mind, which they're perfectly capable of doing, and most people do. And then what? Then I'm no longer lovable, because one person has changed his or her mind. Well, that's the way society operates, isn't it? And then it takes two years usually to get over that till we find somebody else. <laughs> and then we're lovable again. And everything is fine again. And then we can start again. So that's the way it works. But that's not the way it needs to work. We don't have to go along with that. We go along with that because that's the way people do. And we have never really thought about it. It seems nice. It has a sort of a feeling of being cushioned. If there's somebody there that says, oh, you poor thing, you know, well, I love you anyway, it doesn't matter. It's being cushioned against the difficulties. It doesn't really. It doesn't cushion one at all. The only thing that is a cushion against one's own dislikes is the love that we carry within ourselves. That's a cushion. That's the way we can protect ourselves. And if we actually learn some of, some of this, and I don't mean to imply that we're going to be perfect in it, because perfection is the prerogative of the Arahant, and not of an er ordinary worldling. But an ordinary worldling, if has any sense and intelligence, which we all have, will try to go along that path, to the best of his or her ability. Now, if we actually develop some love in ourselves, we gain self-confidence. And self-confidence is not a superiority feeling. Not at all. Superiority and inferiority are both based on ego delusion. Look, I'm so miserable. Look how I'm so great. I am so miserable. I am so great. Both are the ego delusion. And the inferiority complex can be a greater ego assertion than the superiority complex. Unless the superiority complex becomes a bit out of hand, which it does sometimes. But they're both totally based on egocentricity. Look at me. Love does the opposite. Love makes it possible to gain self-confidence. Confidence in one's own ability to withstand the difficulties that life presents to everybody. There is no life without difficulties. That's the Buddha's first noble truth. Existence is dukkha. And if we don't get that through our heads, we, have, we haven't got the start of this practice. It is dukkha. So we do withstand the difficulties of that. The love quality we develop in our hearts and love based on wisdom brings about the confidence that no matter what happens we're going to be able to respond in 
a manner which is fitting, namely lovingly and compassionate, which does not mean that we have to agree to everything. That's another foolish absurdity. We don't have to agree to be loving. We don't have to underwrite that which is obviously wrong. But lovingly we can explain or just show our love. Now that self-confidence is a great help in all our relationships and all our reactions in everyday life. And it brings about a certain calm foundation for the mind on which it can rest to start meditation. If it has already, if the heart has already developed this, meditation is much easier. So we have our meditative factor of PT as an important antidote for all our negativities and under this um, heading of ill will which is the second hindrance you can put every negativity that there is everything whichever one you know about yourself to be the one that bugs you most and if we can't get honest to ourselves we can't see that we don't have to tell anybody else I mean nobody really wants to know you know everybody's got enough troubles of their own they don't really want to know everybody else's troubles so tell yourself write it down this is my worst ill will whichever it happens to be we all have different kinds we may have fear we may have um, difficulty in um, relating to strangers we may have a lot of um, reluctance to, to do something new all this is based on ill will every bit of it jealousy, envy pride all based on ill will everything that's negative and you can think of many things that are negative and all of them are under that heading and if we find that which really is the worst aspect in our daily relationships and in our daily um, reaction we have made the first step, recognition most people who find themselves in that situation don't start changing their heart quality to love they try to run away from where they think the trigger comes it makes no difference triggers are innumerable you cannot count the triggers in this world that will arouse that negativity in one if one has it running away is useless there's nowhere to run this little globe of ours is round there's nowhere to go and samsara is also a circle 
over and over again. We can't get anywhere. There's nowhere to go. Everybody's trying. Everybody's trying to move away, get somewhere else where it's happier, where it's more beautiful, where everybody is going to be loving and kind. But if oneself is loving and kind, we don't have to go anywhere. It makes no difference. In the envy and the jealousy and the pride and the uh, dislikes and the um, reluctances and the all these aspects that everybody carries around and that come to the fore with the triggers are all the the things which this cleanup process dissolves. If we have a strong cleansing agent, it dissolves the dirt. That's what we have to do. It's a very interesting, very worthwhile, and most beneficial practice. Nothing could be more beneficial, nothing could be more worthwhile, nothing could be more interesting. From morning to night. And we should not just look at moments when we actually hate and are on the point of running away from whatever it is that's triggering that hate, but we should look at all our even minor dislikes, even the little ones, and see whether, because it's much easier then, whether we could change those minor ones into equanimity, even-mindedness. When we have the dislikes of things which are not really terribly perturbing, they too go under the heading of ill will. It's the same heading. And we can't escape all the time. Sometimes we can, certainly. If we're very uncomfortable physically, we can escape by making ourselves more comfortable, but not for the duration. We have many things we can't escape from. So our reaction of ill will towards them or dislike doesn't help us at all. All it does is gives an ex expression to the hate we carry within and now we've found something that we can actually dislike. Like in Melbourne, they were having peace demonstrations and shouting and yelling and uh, making a, um, huge speeches how they hated war. So finally they found something that they could really hate. I mean, that's not going to make peace. Never will there be any peace in that direction. Never will there be any real peace, because not everybody will ever practice. So, we look for something where we can dump all that rubbish on. But dumping that rubbish on whatever we're found to dump it on does not get rid of it, unfortunately. Because the minute that particular thing has disappeared, we're looking for something else. The only way we can change this in our household is by dissolving the rubbish within, not by dumping it. By dumping it, it doesn't get dissolved. There's so much more, we keep on dumping and dumping and dumping. And this is why this modern... Um, psychological treatment of actually manifesting your anger maybe in a um, little cell that's 
covered with mattresses and is soundproof where you can scream and yell to your heart content and uh, hit the mattresses and, and stamp on them isn't going to do the slightest bit of good. And maybe even by now people have found that out, I don't know. I'm not so knowledgeable what people are doing. But I do know that they used to do that sort of thing and it is totally useless. Wherever that rubbish comes from, there is no end to that rubbish. It's got to be transformed. So we have the daily mindfulness to find out what our emotional state, our mental content is. Now anger is first an emotional state. But then the mental content which follows that emotional state, if we are not careful enough to get rid of that emotional state, is I hate that person. I can't stand him or her. Very bad person. Have to get rid of him or her or I have to leave or something. Or I have to... Um, I'm going to tell them about it too. And then, of course, we've got the whole gamut of it. Instead of having two people, you've got two enemies. So that's mental content. So if we haven't stopped at the emotional state, haven't got that anger converted into something else, then we'd watch the mental content and see what it is. Of course, by the time we've got to the point I'm going to tell them about it, not as easy anymore. Because, of course, we believe all these things that we think. A meditator has one duty, and that's not to believe what he or she is thinking. If we can't get to that one, we haven't labeled sufficiently. One of the labels in meditation is that mind becomes um, distracted, which is always true. It's nonsense. And if we've used that label, we will be very careful not to believe what we're thinking. So once we say, now I'm going to tell him or her about it, and if we have actually realized the fact that we don't have to believe what we're thinking, we may still be able to backtrack. The practice is then the mental, the mental state, the emotional state, the mental content. In this case, this hindrance, second hindrance, ill will, enormously helps through pity, through the first step of meditation but also putting one's attention, mindfulness, on the small and seemingly trivial dislikes. That is an important aspect of seeing these um, difficulties and changing them before they grow into massive hates and anger. And the trivial dislikes also mount up. Many drops fill a bucket. So we turn the faucet off right then and there, even if it's only little drippings that come out. And that's enough for this morning. Any questions, comments, commentaries, sub-commentaries, whatever.
That's right. It's, um, that goes on. It's mind content, the force, mindfulness. And the more of those little ones we get rid of, the less of a foundation we give the big ones. So the big ones grow out of the little ones. If we really, if we um, try to get at the little ones, we very often can destroy the root for the big ones. It's a, it's a very, very helpful uh, way of doing it. And it helps mindfulness, certainly. Mm-hmm. Yes. And it is one which, uh, in business life, um, very uh, applicable and practical. Because it's not very useful if you go and see a customer, yet you watch your steps. You better watch your irritation about him. I mean, be much more practical. <laughs> and all four of those mindfulnesses are interchangeable as they become practical. I did harp on the body a lot but the others are equally important and sometimes far more practical anything else you are going to be able to read all these notes afterwards (laughs) I mean I couldn't do that my handwriting would deteriorate so quickly I wouldn't be able to read it anymore (laughs) <laughs> anything else that's unclear or we have a very pretty visitor there she's still there yes mm. hello mm. I think if there's no light I think it's not so dangerous I think it's the light which is oh oh we better open the door for her, maybe. Now I have a curious thing. I'm terrified. I love it. It's beautiful. Birds I love, and yet the, the beating of the wings makes me feel absolutely terrified. Really? Completely Last night, that thing? Yes. Yes, I, I, I noticed that, but uh, I thought, uh, I didn't realize that you were terrified. I noticed you were disturbed by it. Yes, it's so stupid. So that was an interesting thing for me to look at. Yes. Well, you can investigate it in two two ways. The the first thing that you can investigate is: Are you uh, becoming subconsciously, not consciously, but subconsciously aware that they're having a lot of dukkha when they do that, mm-hmm. and can't stand the dukkha? I felt very sorry for them. Right. Yes. And not being able to stand the dukkha and you becoming terrified, what you're doing there is having, instead of having one creature having dukkha, you're having double dukkha. You're also having dukkha now, which doesn't help at all. Um, So that might be the approach you can take. 
um, the antidote for that is of course love and compassion so loving the creature feeling compassionate for the creature and realizing that there's nothing you can do that dukkha is and then you don't have to have the dukkha but the compassion instead Yes, yes. Compassion means that you have empathy for the creature, but you don't get disturbed by it because you recognize dukkha is. That's the way things are. And uh, if that, that is a very important thing. Now, if, of course, you were able to help, like we were able to open the door now, sure. But at that point last night, for instance, with that light thing going, and that, there was no way one could get that creature out. And I checked and looked to see if there was any way of doing it. It was impossible no way so that's it you know so in, instead of having you see now I, I'll talk about that too it's a very important subject actually pity not pity not the one I've been talking about but pity English pity is the near enemy of compassion and produces double dukkha so it's a very important aspect of, to know that and to check oneself about that you know and, and compassion arises actually out of the knowledge that oneself has dukkha that oneself is beating one's means against the wall and without any results anything else? Um, in developing a, a loving kindness um, do you feel that it's um, a good idea to um, actually start with um, I think that's actually the end of the tape. It stopped flashing, so I think it wants to punch it because No. I'm too far away, so it must be actually yes. on, the, uh, on the wrong switch. No, no, it's okay. Yeah. Is it, it now when I'm seeing something, it's doing it's it? It's doing it, yeah. I think the switch is on the, on the wrong mode. It should be picking it up from the microphone, and it's actually picking it up from the. Um, no, you're just far away. Try now. Okay. <laughs> no, mine. Picking up mine. No. No, but uh, actually, what's happening is, remember, you said I should repeat the question, and I haven't thought of that. So say that, and, and I'll repeat it. Okay. Is it a good practice to be confident? Uh, that the love, if you're trying to develop loving kindness, some people like to express that by helping other people. Um, and I know you've spoken before about that sometimes that can be not such a good idea because if you actually are not feeling that loving kindness yourself inside and you turn into the sort of person who's rushing about trying to help lots of other people, rather than looking at the fact that you really don't have loving kindness. Or there may be the type of person that don't have loving kindness inside, but will develop it by actually having contact with other people, by going out and helping them, and, and seeing in reality, instead of reading about it in the newspapers, if you actually, let's say for example, you're doing something like Meals on Wheels, that you're going in and out of people's homes, you can actually see the sickness that they've got, you can see the misery that they're living on, 
and that itself might be the thing that you need to trigger off uh, the emotional response inside and get mm. you going emotionally. Well, you don't expect me to repeat that, do you? <laughs> I'm afraid my memory wouldn't be up to that. <laughs> um, but the, uh, the question is uh, quite valid and we all have to deal with this sort of thing. Uh, namely, that if we want to develop loving-kindness and we think that we could do that through helping others, that's valid. But we must be able to do that, what we want to help with. The do-gooder who rushes about trying to help others without first knowing exactly the topic or the actual thing that they want to help with and being more or less an expert on it is doing more harm than good. So if one, for instance, wants to help others that are sick by having a more positive attitude, it's no good going there to saying to that person, well, why don't you think positively? I mean, they never will. But if you yourself have been ill and have been able to get through that illness and come out with a different understanding that you had before about illness, and then try to share that with other people, you can be helpful, right? And the same goes for physical things, like if you want to help somebody build a house and you've never, never even had a hammer in your hand before, I don't know that you'd be of great assistance to them. Um, and it can, but being able to help is very useful. And going to, like you're saying, to uh, old people and uh, maybe sick people and uh, bringing the meals on wheels it can be very helpful but it can also have the opposite effect it can have the effect look at me how what a good person I am I'm going out three times a week with meals on wheels and that's the end of that one so it's very individually different now if you could do it because you want to develop your heart it's fine but if you do it in order to support your idea of yourself as a very nice person it may not be useful. So, in German we have a wonderful proverb which I can't really translate. Was dem einen sein Ules ist dem anderen sein Nachtigall, which is an owl for one is a nightingale for another. It's not always the same for everybody. So we have to investigate our intentions, and they are like icebergs. Only the tip is showing. It's not easy. And we have to investigate it again and again. And sometimes we will see quite clearly, if we have you know, necessary investigation powers, that our intention, which is outwardly shown and looks all right, inwardly is not like that. And we can learn from that. The whole thing is a learning process. So in some instances, this going out and helping may be very good. In other instances, it may not be. Um, one of the things we can do in order to develop ourselves in along this loving thing is loving uh, attention to others is to check our emotional state again and again and change it again and again love is an emotion and that's where we check it and if we check it and see it that it's lacking and in 99.8% of mankind probably in 100% it's lacking um, we have something to work with. We can always, we may have a little of it, we can always add some to it. You know? And of course, 
If helpfulness is generated out of love, devotion, gratitude, respect, reverence, all of them together or one of them, then it's real. So we can check that out too. That's a, that is a real expression. And then it is a manifestation of the emotional state in the material state. So that can be very good because it solidifies the emotional state. All of, all of these aspects play a part in it. Anything else? Was it making little flashes while I was talking? Ah, good. <laughs> I'm very leery now about the whole thing <laughs> because we had so much trouble. <laughs> Any, anything else? Everything quite clear. Good. Automatically provide the first two meditation factors are the beginning of meditation, trying to get concentrated and then finally being a bit concentrated. And every meditator knows those and they already have some benefit. The third factor of meditation is the first one that actually means meditation. Everything else before that was the method trying to get there. Now, if we look at the method, we can compare that to a key. And if you want to unlock a door with the key, you obviously have to hold the key in your hand steadily and long enough in order to fit it into the keyhole. Well, it's the same with attention on the breath or any other meditation subject. But I hang on to it long enough and steady enough to fit it in the slot of concentration. And when one does that, one can then unlock the door. And the door that is unlocked leads to a mansion which has eight chambers, which means eight steps of meditative absorption all of them particular to their own quality and all of them designed to give the mind the ability to see a totally different reality. Unless that happens in meditation, the whole meditation practice is still trying to hang on to the key which is admirable if one has the patience to do that and some people do and they are to be admired that they have the patience to hang on to this key year after year without ever finding the keyhole most people get sick and tired of it and stop understandably so now having found that keyhole there's only one thing to do and that uh, to unlock the door and not continue to fumble with the key and that too is a very prevalent misunderstanding that the possibility which arises of unlocking the door is not taken that opportunity is not made use of 
one continues to fumble with the key, namely one continues to try and concentrate on the breath. Why this misunderstanding has arisen worldwide, I don't understand that. I don't know. The Buddha certainly taught exactly the opposite. I can't give any reason why that should have arisen. But we don't have to worry about that misunderstanding because we don't have to attend to that. We under attend to that which is the way the Buddha taught, namely that having been able to stay with the meditation subject long enough to actualize one's entry into mental emotionally purity which is the first chamber so to say of that eight room mansion one then drops of course the key and by continued practice and practice and continued attention to this one keeps the door open so that one never has to again try to unlock it. If one stops practicing, naturally one has to start fiddling with that key again, with the method. The method becomes totally unnecessary once one has found the entry. But if one doesn't continue to go in through that door, naturally it slams shut. And everybody who has ever been able to get into the absorptions and then stop meditating knows that. It is a little easier to unlock the door again once one has had it unlocked because at least one knows what one has done in the past. One has at least a pattern which one can follow. So the second time around it's a little easier. Now that first experience which happens from the mind state which has been quite enough, long enough, and long enough is totally arbitrary, and quite enough is totally arbitrary. Some people need a long time to stay without thinking, others only briefly. Some people need a really quiet mind and quiet surroundings and other people's minds are in turmoil and fuzzy and, and contracted and upset and anxious and can still do it because of the fact that they have a lot of determination. Our determination is a very important factor. Because if we don't have that determination, the mind just keeps on playing its usual games. And that's all it is. Game playing. All that goes on in the mind is game playing, every bit of it. Some of it is geared towards survival. Very good stuff. Doesn't last survival, but at least it has its value in trying to practice while we've got it. Everything else which has opinion and view in it is the games the mind plays because all these views and opinions are based on an utter 
illusion and delusion. They can't be correct. All of them are wrong. Buddha's first discourse in the long discourses, the Diga Nikaya, the Brahmajala Sutta, gives 62 views which are headings for all the views mankind can have, each one wrong. There is no right view for someone who thinks I'm having that view. No way is it possible to have the right view then. It's always based on relativity. And that relativity continually brings about the dichotomy of what we like and what we don't like, and what we appreciate and what we want and what we don't want. The second discourse is this one, the Samana Sutta. It's the number two in the long discourses, and elaborates on that first one. The first one sets the scene, the second one brings about the practice of how to make that scene actual, actual in one's own heart and mind. Naturally, meditation plays an enormously important part in it, but as you must have understood by now, it's not the only thing. If it isn't embedded in good understanding and in some knowledge of the Buddha's teaching and in a clear-cut admittance that oneself cannot possibly relate to it on an absolute level because the relativity of the me is always in the way unless that admittance is made within one's heart one will never be able to see the profundity of the teaching it's always going to be just partially philosophical partially psychological and partially a practice part but it's never going to go to the depth of it so we have to admit in our own hearts that whatever we are having as a viewpoint and as an understanding is wrong and when we do that we're emptying ourselves out and when we empty ourselves out there is that opportunity of filling ourselves with something brand new so if we enter into the first chamber which means that the mind has stayed long enough quiet enough so that there is a change of consciousness the first thing that is being experienced is an extremely pleasant physical sensation which is described in 17 different modes but can take far more different aspects than 17 because people will explain these sensations in different ways which doesn't matter the interesting aspect of meditation is the fact that it is science of mind repeatable universally practical because it can only be science if it's repeatable and if everybody can do it and that is a fact that meditation has everybody can do it everybody can repeat it and 
everybody goes along the same way. So all these ideas that come into the mind are all wrong viewpoints. Either the idea of, oh, I can't do this, or look at me, how wonderful I can do this. It's nothing but science of mind going along a prescribed path. There is no personality in it. And once we get that through our understanding, a little less ego underwriting and a little more understanding that we are a phenomena which has certain abilities, certain disabilities and can go along a certain path, we will see the whole thing of the teaching and the meditation in a far less convoluted way. Our mind is convoluted because it makes explanations about things which don't have to be explained. It makes assumptions and inferences which are all wrong, every one of them. And because of this wrongness, there's all this unhappiness, problems, worries, fears, all the things that beset mankind and everybody carries some of that around with them. And then people think, look at me, what a terrible life I have. Or look at me, what a wonderful life I have. Neither way. Viewpoints. Everybody has exactly the same mind. There's no difference. It's just a matter how we use it. Some people use it very foolishly. And some people are not quite that foolish, they use it in a better way. Now, if a meditator doesn't learn to use his or her mind in an intelligent way, they might as well stop meditating, because that's what meditation is for. Meditation is not just for trying to gain some peace of mind, but it's for using the mind in an intelligent manner, which eventually leads to profound insight. Now, the ability to get into that first aspect of the meditative absorption means that the consciousness has changed slightly and the result is sensation. Now, sensation in a way which one hasn't really experienced before, extremely pleasant, but certainly something that is not so far removed from our ordinary way of living because it has to do with body. Now we've all had extremely pleasant sensations, but whenever we've had them, they were due to an outside trigger. Something was touch sensation. That is quite possible to have. Here, we are independent of outside triggers. And unless we see this quite clearly, we will not have the necessary benefit from this ability to stay concentrated. The outside triggers are our dependency upon sense contact 
and our dependency upon the world. And as long as we depend upon the world, we're constantly going to be disappointed. Constantly. Because the world never complies with our expectations. It just doesn't want to. We might as well leave it at that. It just doesn't do it. Our expectations are, most of the time, unrealistic anyway. And even when they should be not quite as unrealistic as they usually are, the world doesn't take any notice of it. Nobody cares. Everybody wants their own bit, their own piece of the cake. So as long as we are, depend upon the outside for our happiness, we've got unhappiness pre-programmed. We've just got it and that's it, finished. We might as well resign ourselves to that fact. That in between we get a bit of pleasure does not mean we're getting happiness, we're getting pleasure. Those two have to be kept apart in our mind to understand. And it only really comes home when the change of consciousness takes place because then we realize what we've had so far was a dull and very minor manifestation of pleasure or happiness that could be ours. It's called PT in Pali, P-I-T-I, and means nothing other than, in practical terms, pleasant sensation. It's translated as rapture. But rapture is a very strong word in English and therefore not quite applicable because rapture is also the mental reaction. And that's not what happens immediately. What happens immediately is delightful sensation. And it's also translated as interest. And that's an important translation because this is when our interests get getting aroused. Now, as I said before, the people who do without that and keep on meditating are admirable. They must have really strong determination. And for some reason, some people do. Most people don't, don't have that strong determination. They fall by the wayside and look for something easier. This is also a misconception. Nothing is easier than meditation. What do you have to do? You sit on a little pillow, you cross your legs, you close your eyes, and you stop thinking. Now what could be easier? It's our convoluted mind which makes it difficult. The convolutions in the mind, which are totally unnecessary. We are opinions and viewpoints, um, reactions and hopes, all that make it difficult. Otherwise it would be very simple. And there are many people, well, I don't know many, numbers of people, who after having got to the concentration, at least of the first absorption, then remember that when they were small children they did that without anybody telling them to do it. And it was a cinch. So there must be many, many small children who do this without any difficulty because it's a natural way for the mind to go. It's totally natural. The only trouble is then when the children get a little bigger then all these uh, outer influences come upon them and then their greed and hate takes over and eventually what will we have 
a tense, excited humanity, agitated and full of stress. To come you like children, well in this case it would really work, but we can't do it. So we've got to relearn. Relearn to stop having our convolutions in the mind. And it's relearnable because it's totally a natural pathway for the mind. And as it goes towards that, the very the most predominant sensations are which are most often experienced lightness, lack of heaviness of the body, a feeling of floating, losing contours of the body, tingling, warmth, several of them or just one of them, being raised up. These are probably the most common ones that exist for the most for most people. Just one of them is plenty. And although these words do not con- have any connotation of something special, it certainly feels entirely different from what one usually feels. The uh, body consciousness has changed so dramatically that very often one's first reaction to that is um, great surprise and when that great surprise arises then of course the mind is no longer concentrated so one's got to start over again as one practices this the mind is totally used to it and just takes it in its stride just as it is totally used to discursive thinking day in and day out from morning to night and just takes it in its stride even though it's extremely unpleasant, brings nothing but unhappiness to the mind, tension and, ex- and uh, tiredness, the mind is used to it. So it takes it in its stride, does it day after day. If one practices meditation day after day, this first step is taken in its stride. It's just a natural way the mind goes. And this is exactly what the Buddha explained. This is what happens. Just stop thinking and watch the breath instead and the next step is extremely pleasant sensation the translation as I said before of bliss is not quite applicable delightful sensation might be the best way to describe the actuality of it because of its delightful content, it counteracts very effectively our second hindrance, the one that plays the most havoc in people's lives and in the world. Ill will, hate, dislike, rejection, resentment, fear, All these go under the overall heading of ill will. Now ill will in some people is so strong, mentally so strong, that it makes them physically ill. And that's why it's called ill will. 
it makes one ill. And it's a very interesting aspect because one can also make oneself well. And if a person is very beset by that, it's not easy to do it just by wanting. I mean, most people don't even want. But if they at least want, it's not easy to do. So if we don't have this assistance through the meditative factor of PT, we really have an uphill battle. And this uphill battle is usually lost. But with the assistance of this meditative factor, it becomes not automatic either, but it certainly is a much easier way. Now the first reason for that is that while we are having these pleasant sensations, obviously ill will is impossible to have. It can't arise simultaneously with PT, with the pleasant, delight, delightful sensation. In co-joint with it, joy arises. So ill will can't arise. It's impossible. But that's not all, because that doesn't last very long. People usually don't spend much time in meditation, even if they can do it well enough. There is a residual effect of it. And this residual effect is the most important one. Because the mind has now finally found a home. The body's always had a home. None of us live on the street luckily. We all have a home. We have a roof over our heads. We have a nice bed. We have a, probably an easy chair somewhere. We've got a bathtub and all sorts of things for the body. But we can put the body in the most comfortable position over and over. If the mind isn't comfortable, what difference does it make? None whatsoever. And most minds are extremely uncomfortable. But they're so used to it that they don't even know it anymore. And so, also, with that discomfort the mind has, it tries to distract itself. Quite successfully, of course, for a limited time. However, if we are able, any time we want to, to enter into this mansion's first room, we have found a home for the mind where it's utterly at ease and comfortable where it does not experience anything that is uncomfortable so knowing that in daily life that one has this home just as we know we have a home for the body and don't have to stay on the street and we're quite relaxed about it then we also know we now have a home for the mind and so we can relax also during the day. And so the things that happen to us during the day, may they be unpleasant or destructive or they may have any kind of negativity, they do not enter into us as a solid difficulty, but they remain just outside they don't have to be taken in 
and owned because we know we can go home just like working in the office and being able to go home everything that happens we can always go home so nothing has the kind of sting to it anymore that it used to and therefore ill will dislike rejection resistance arises much less it's only the non-returner one step before fully enlightened that doesn't have any of it but if we don't make some tracks to remove it a bit clean up a bit our lives never become more harmonious and peaceful all we can do with them is distract ourselves to the point where we don't notice it and that's what most people do because if we notice it it's really dukkha even if we haven't put the dukkha in the body yet so this is the residual effect of the meditative experience which makes a great deal of difference to our daily lives it has the understand there is the understanding in the mind that the ordinary everyday marketplace mentality is just utilitarian it's not the human mentality at all and we then know ourselves to have a different kind of consciousness available and then when we know that that we have a different kind of consciousness available the marketplace mentality which is utilitarian and therefore necessary at times is no longer important it's just being used just like our cooking pots are not important but they're utilitarian and also cook the food that's all it's the same with that kind of mentality so we have an expansion of mind we have a, a growth of mind now everybody that gets born kids they have to grow physically so that they become adult happens automatically unless there's something wrong physically and at age 2021 that growth is finished very few people try to make their mind grow so that one day it really is finished and has matured most minds stay at the level between 3 and 15 15's already pretty good <laughs> you can check it out so this is the first step into real mind growth it this is expansion possibility and this expansion takes place quite noticeable because it goes away from its contracted state of looking here and looking there and liking this and disliking that and it just has one factor in mind one factor which is an experience now ill will of any kind whether it's mild or whether it's strong and strong ill will of course is called anger is compared by the buddha to a bilious disease the bile coming up it is terrible 
If anybody's ever had that kind of sickness, they know what it tastes like. It's just awful. Anger tastes terrible. People talk about justifiable anger, which is another absurdity, because who would ever have thought of a justifiable bilious disease? I mean, is that really justifiable? It's just a disease. That's all it is. This is from ill will. Our language is quite explicit what it means, but we don't pay attention, of course. So, that's one thing he compared it with. The other thing he compared it with was a little pond, water pond, in which there was, well, there was so much wind that the waves were going high, and of course one can't see one's likeness. If we get angry, the whole inner turmoil makes it impossible to actually, actually see, in the end, why we're angry, and that we're really hurting ourselves more than anybody. Buddha also compared it to picking up hot coals with one's bare hands and trying to throw them at somebody who gets burned first. Now the other person might have practiced long enough already to duck and then there's only one person that gets burned. If we actually hit the other one with that anger, well then we might have two angry people, which is certainly not desirable because then we have actually shown in our own personal manifestations how war starts. And everybody says, I don't like war, I like peace. Now why don't we do what we like? Instead of thinking about it, why not doing it? Thinking less, doing more is a formula which everybody should try to remember. Because thinking with the ordinary, everyday mentality is something that we can magically turn around every which way. We call the mind a magician. It can put a rabbit out of any hat. It's totally capable of turning everything upside down. That which is really helpful and beautiful because it tells us where it's at, we consider terrible because it goes against our ego. And that which supports our ego we think is wonderful and in reality it's terrible. We haven't got a clue. Our mind just goes every which way. So instead of doing this thinking which we are so fond of, to actualize that which we already have agreed to is worthwhile. But actually doing it, that's the practice path. So we all agree we don't like war, we want peace, so why don't we make it? Very simple, simple um, equation, but not so easy to do even though it's a simple equation. Now, in, instead of having the um, ordinary, everyday ill will, the um, antidote in daily life, of course, is the loving-kindness meditation, first of all, as a method, and then loving-kindness practice in everyday life, from morning to night, 
never forgetting. And if we can't remember it all the time, let's say to remember it as much of the time as our convoluted mind allows. The less convolutions we have in the mind, the more it can remember. Now loving-kindness meditation is geared towards both calm and insight. It shows us that the only worthwhile emotional state is one of lovingness and compassion. But it also brings calm to the mind because the mind needs that kind of understanding in order to become calm. So in many cases, loving-kindness meditation is an entry. It's the key instead of the breath. It's the key to unlock the door. In many cases, that can be. And in fact, in the Buddha's discourses, it is mentioned that one monk had so much of that without ever even saying it that he became enlightened through it. So it does produce calm and insight. Calm is necessary in order to get insight. So loving-kindness meditation is a very important factor, as you can see, and should never be neglected. Again, it is a, I'm not, I don't understand the reason why it is not practiced in the meditative um, environment more and more uh, importance given it because the Buddha certainly gave it a lot of importance. It does produce the calm which is necessary in order to get that door open, it can, and the insight which arises from that, or should arise from that, is the fact that if I feel love and compassion, my mind said ease. Not dis-ease, no ill will, but ease and good will. How simple can it get? It can't be any simpler than that, can it? Why don't we all do it? Because our ego illusion is against it. The ego delusion which says, I want and I want particularly my ego to be supported. The more, the better. And the more it gets supported, the less chances there are of seeing it for what it is. Public and private enemy number one. It is the cause and condition for all that's wrong with anyone, anywhere. Now some people obviously have more trouble with that than others. Even very ordinary people. Some people have already seen that in their ordinary lives and tried to remove a bit of it. And if they have done that, their lives are much easier than other people's lives. But the real depth of understanding comes only through the meditative path because the mind has to be quiet enough to get in there and accept it. See, most people's minds can't accept the fact that we're not really here, that there's nobody there, just a process. The first reaction is, what am I doing all this 
rummaging around in my life for have I wasted my time all the time of course I haven't so I must be here logical conclusion no convoluted mind but the mind which has become calm in meditation and the Buddha's instructions are that one can become enlightened after any of the absorptions even the first one which is not very easy but it can be done he gave that as a complete discourse that after each of the absorptions one can become enlightened I have never found a discourse where he says that it can be done without it there are commentarial explanations which are not by the Buddha of course they are by commentators where it is mentioned that in the Buddha's time some people did become enlightened just by hearing a discourse but who knows what they were doing before they heard the discourse I don't know doesn't say anything so even this very first one can bring about an depth of of understanding and a change of attitude which may bring us to a completeness in our whole uh, practice but usually people need more than just the first one our daily activity of counteracting ill will with the loving kindness and loving kindness action loving-kindness meditation and loving-kindness action it is one reason why I've said never start a meditation without giving yourself loving-kindness if we don't love ourselves we love nobody I'm going to preempt the uh, uh, reply to that and saying oh I find it very easy to love other people I just can't love myself the answer is just try again it's impossible because love is a quality of the heart and not a judgment who is to be loved if I haven't got the quality of the heart for myself I haven't got it for anyone Jesus said love thy neighbor as thyself I don't think needs any explanation yourself there is no valid spiritual path that doesn't say the same thing except in different words Buddha said hate is never conquered by hate it's conquered by love alone love is a quality of the heart which does not have any discrimination or judgment so whether I am a wonderful person or whether I am not makes absolutely no difference if there is love there is love and whether somebody else is lovable or not makes absolutely no difference if we are looking for somebody that's lovable who's lovable before we can love we've got a hard time and most people do the only one who's truly lovable is an arahant how many do you think there are in Australia amongst its 15 million inhabitants how many of them do you think are in the whole world 
You're going to wait for somebody who is totally lovable before loving? Waste of time. Are we ourselves totally lovable? Certainly not. Love has nothing to do with the quality of that what's being loved. Nothing at all. That is our syndrome of achievement and result. Love is a quality that we can cultivate and develop in our heart just like intelligence is a quality of the mind. And if we have intelligence and we can use it, for instance, to solve an equation, that intelligence does not disappear if there doesn't happen to be an equation to be solved. The same with love. If love becomes the quality of our heart, it does not disappear if there's nobody sitting there that needs to be loved. It just is. And if it is, many things happen in our interior being. And this is something we also ne never should forget. Life is lived according to our interior household, not according to what goes on out there. Because what goes on out there are sometimes triggers and most of the time nothing. Nothing is happening at all. Just think for a moment what happens in your life from morning to night every day. The same thing over and over. And yet the interior being makes up one's life. And if one doesn't pay attention to one's interior household and cleans it up and tidies it up and gets it as organized and well looked after as every exterior household should be, happiness will always elude one. There's always going to be dis-ease, unease, because it's all a jumble in there. Sometimes it's okay, other times it isn't. Everybody cleans up their exterior households daily, or most people anyway, and make it nice and tidy and throw away the rubbish, one hopes. Well, it's the same with one's interior household. Throw away the rubbish and get rid of it. And then, when we have thrown away the rubbish, we can see what is in there. And we can see what is overshadowing the complete and utter purity, that which is only love and compassion, that which is pure mind, original mind, any which way you want to call it, doesn't matter, matrix of existence, that which really is, in Sanskrit, tattvamasi, that what is, in Pali, tatagata, thus have come, it's all in there, but we've got all this rubbish around it. So love is one cleansing agent which has the most powerful ingredients. If we want to clean up ours, you need a cleansing agent to remove the spots. That's the same with this interior household. Without love, we won't get it clean. Now love has many aspects devotion, respect, reverence, gratitude. If none of those are arising within us, love hasn't taken hold yet. Love is not wanting to be near. It's got nothing to do with it. Because wanting to be near is only 
concerned with a particular love again. If love is our cleansing agent within and gets that in our household in order, it's got nothing.